Hey everyone, that was Sorry I Like You by Daniel Burbank. I know you were all enjoying it and wanted to keep listening to it. I had to cut it off and get in here. You can find it for yourself if you want to go on to soundcloud.com slash Daniel Burbank. We'll of course link it in the description at the bottom of this episode though. I'll give you guys easy access to find his stuff. I got all of his great work. Uh, this is Giraffes Have Black Tongues. I am once again going solo. It's Dave. And we're doing another Baby Giraffes episode. I think maybe this will be like a monthly occurrence here where I just get on here. Talk about all the uh, comic books I've read over the past month or so. Fill everyone in because no one told me they hated this and wanted me to stop doing this. So because of none of you contacting us and telling us to quit, here we go again. Um, this time, at least, if you are big on like the indie books, or like the third label, the non-big two, I guess, if you're not big on those, uh, you're in luck. Because this month, really all I've read have been Marvel and DC's latest stuff. So at least if you're not like super into comic books, this will at least be stuff here you might be a little bit more familiar with, have a better uh, background too. I guess we'll start with DC, because uh, those were the ones I read longest ago. Let's see if I remember everything. Should have made notes, and I did not. We'll see how badly that hurts me here. First DC book I, I read recently was the continuing with the Rebirth storyline. It was the Nightwing Volume 4 collection titled Blockbuster. Blockbuster, pretty well-known villain in the DC world. It's a guy named Mark Desmond. He's, he's a brilliant scientist. He's basically like the DC version of the Hulk, except it's not gamma radiation. It's a serum that he created, sort of like a super soldier of a serum gone wrong, where he loses all of his brilliance, but he gains monster strength and like immunity against uh, physical attacks. He's, he's just kind of like a, a giant fucking monster Hulk. This book is about his brother, uh, a new character, I guess, called Roland Desmond. I'm at least not familiar with him at all from any previous stuff I've read. Maybe he's been around, but uh, he's new to me. Uh, basically, he, he comes back to Bloodhaven after some time away. His brother has been, he's still in Blackgate Prison, serving a 10-year sentence for the last time. He and Nightwing faced off, and Nightwing triumphed. Roland comes in and then he hunts down Nightwing and Nightwing is thinking that it's going to be a revenge tale. And so he tries to like arm himself and get ready for Roland's oncoming attack. Roland is just there to show Nightwing. He's from Bloodhaven as well. He wants to protect the city. He wants to look out for the city. He's upset about all this new alien tech that has been stolen from some mystery corporation. They're calling themselves the second hand. And they're just selling it all on the black market to any random gang members that want to purchase it. So he's there to try and help Nightwing rid the city of all this alien tech, Bloodhaven safe. So also, before Mark went away to prison, he had perfected a serum finally that let him control the blockbuster monster. So it's basically like a little uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde-like serum where he can just take a sip of it right before he loses control. And he can get back into control, calm down, and prevent himself from going full blockbuster. Roland has been using this to his advantage. So blockbuster up, beat the shit out of some people, and then immediately unblockbuster himself and, and try to try to save face, play it cool. So the main storyline is Roland gets a job at this new Bloodhaven casino that's run by a villain, a, a gangster named King Shark. King Shark has some tie to the second hand. He's one of the main suppliers of all their weapons on the streets of Bloodhaven. So both Roland and Dick have had an eye on him. Uh, well, Dick's had an eye on him. Roland is trying to get in tight with him, posing as his muscle in his club. 
so he can try to get in close as well with him. That's kind of like the main story of what's going on right now. But uh, the, the side story to this whole thing that's going on, building up while these two are, are investigating Tiger Shark, Dick Grayson's living girlfriend for the past all four issues, really. Uh, she's a former supervillain sidekick called the Defacer. Name is Sean Sung. Uh, she, she works a uh, recovery program in Bloodhaven for former sidekicks of supervillains who are trying to turn over a new leaf and uh, leave a life of crime behind them. Have a support group going on. And Dick works at the community center as his regular day job when he's not night winging. So the two of them, they've been having some problems. This whole issue going on. And it's because the Defacer's old supervillain got released from prison. And she offered her a place to stay uh, because she wants to try to help her out. Try to help her lead a good life now. Now that she's out so she doesn't go back into prison. Her and Nightwing are kind of having some fights, having some issues, and it all kind of culminates with the Defacer agreeing to help the Pigeon, or her old supervillain boss, the Pigeon, awesome name, uh, with, with some uh, defacement and some stealing of uh, public property, all while Nightwing's so busy, tied up in this whole King Shark investigation thing. They kind of haven't really had time uh, to just be alone together. It's kind of causing a rift between the two of them. That whole little side quest storyline thing kind of ends. While Nightwing is uh, investigating the Tiger Shark, he, he works with Roland a little bit. Roland gives him some sort of good information, sort of shitty information. So he knows he can't totally trust him, but he does list off a name of like 30 cops who are going to be at this meeting. And he tells him it's a location for a giant buy that's going on where King Shark is going to be selling a bunch of second hands, more powerful weapons. So Nightwing goes and he stows away and he investigates it. And while he's there, uh, Blockbuster never mentioned to him that it's also going to have uh, an entire building full of, not super villains, they're sort of like the shittiest F-list quality villains. Like I've never heard of any of these characters before. I don't know if they were just one-offs for this story or if they're actual regular characters. But yeah, Nightwing has zero issue at all uh, disposing of them and, and surviving. So it all kind of runs down to where um, there's a giant bomb on the boat that Blockbuster planted there, and he's going to blow it up. Uh, Nightwing is there with the Clockmaster, and he uses this special vest that we had seen a uh, street-level nobody purchase and using in a, a couple issues back in the Nightwing series. Um, it was stored there on this boat because King Shark had uh, gotten it back, and he was going to start using it. Basically, it stops time all the time around you. And so it's a, some, the whole reason the Clockmaster was there was because he wanted to just steal this thing while everyone else was busy bidding on like the actual uh, higher quality weapons. Uh, so Nightwing catches him in the act and he kind of forces him to help him freeze time so that he can try and save all of the villains from that boat before it blows up and all the cops that are on there too. So Nightwing pulls that off, much to the amazement of the Clockmaster. But after that, he's like, all right, I, I can't trust Blockbuster, fuck him. We're going to war. So he, he breaks into the casino, or no, Blockbuster first goes back to the casino because he's assuming Nightwing died in that explosion. While he's there, he overpowers King Shark and he beats up all of his bodyguards. King Shark has some super mutant tiger shark dog wolf things. I don't know why. They look fucking stupid. But one of the most brutal DC panels I've ever seen, Blockbuster just catches one like he opens his mouth with his hands and just rips him apart from jaw to jaw. 
So that was kind of like the most brutal thing I've ever seen in like a DC book, especially like now that all the DC Marvel shit is kind of gearing more towards like getting younger readers into their stuff. That was a nice surprise. Really shocking. But uh, yeah, so he disposes of these two little fucking monster mutant sharks. No problem. And he overpowers Tiger Shark and he locks him in a little cage. He makes him sign over the deed to the casino first. So it's now his casino. He now runs it. That's what's going to be happening going forward, we assume. Right around this time after that, Nightwing does finally emerge from the water after saving everyone. He shows up at the casino. Blockbuster says, oh, I knew you would survive. Of course, good job. Have a drink. And he gives him a drink. And they kind of have a little stare down. He's like, I'm coming for you. And he's like, yeah, I I expected it. I'm ready. Bring it whenever you're ready. So uh, going forward at some point in time, we're going to get some big blow off between the two of them. But before Nightwing can actually uh, go after him, he he gets pulled away. Uh, The Huntress, who back at the end of DC uh, New 52 storyline, back when Grayson was no longer Nightwing because Nightwing had been killed, according or for the sake of all the public, he he went undercover in this uh, secret spy agency called Spiral as Agent 37. She was a pretty solid uh, series, which I would highly recommend checking out. But basically the backstory there was the Huntress was his handler. They eventually started dating. And then when Huntress kind of just got thrown on to the Birds of Prey with Batgirl and uh, Black Canary. And Dick Grayson always kind of pops up in there because he's got a history with both Batgirl and the Huntress as well. There's always like lots of like teasing of like, will they, won't they get back together or whatever. So they're kind of got their little love. Story going on this whole time while he's uh, dealing with like the whole thing going on with his actual girlfriend, uh, Defacer. So Defacer gets all pissed off at him. She tells him they should break up. So Nightwing's like, all right, I'm fine. So he goes off on his own and he, uh, Huntress ends up showing up in Bloodhaven. She's like, I need your help. We have to go back to Spiral. We have to save him. She was a headmistress. She was like a teacher for this uh, group of young girls who were learning to become future spiral agent spies and i guess one of them like alert her that there's trouble and they need their assistance so she and nightwing go off and they uh, go back to the spiral headquarters and so backstory for the spiral thing just because you need it for this part of the nightwing series so the end of the agent 37 run nightwing's partner was a guy called uh called agent one or his name was just tiger um he eventually takes over as the leader of spiral after Minos, who was the leader before, but turns out to be evil, and Grayson has to stop him, Tiger becomes the new head of Spiral. So he, he's Dick Grayson's former partner, and he's an ally. He's helped him out in the past during the solo Nightwing rebirth stuff. And it's revealed that he is the man behind the whole secondhand plan. It turns out it was just this overly elaborate hoax to get Nightwing to show back up in front of Spiral. Minos is not actually dead, it, it's revealed. He, so spiral agents, they all have these uh, implants called Hypnos, which are basically like the coolest thing fucking ever. It's alien technology that you can blur your face out so that people can never see your true identity if you don't want them to. And it also lets you fuck with their mind as well at the same time. So if you want them to just not even remember seeing you being there, you can just like wipe that from their memory, kind of. It's... This ridiculously, stupidly uh, awesome little comic booky hack that they have. But so Minos has been using one of these hypnos the entire time to pose as the Tiger King. Tiger King is actually just being held hostage in like a dungeon basement below the base. Uh, we eventually save him, but uh comes down to this big ultimate, once again, final showdown between Minos and Nightwing. 
this time Huntress and her four girls that she was teaching while she was still with Spiral. Uh, they're, they're all trying to hack into his mind while Nightwing is just kind of keeping him distracted, getting beat up by him to make sure he doesn't like notice that they're uploading some kind of ultimate virus to his hypnos to, to knock him out and uh, beat him finally. So that all finally goes down and uh, they save the day. They save Spiral. Tiger King is safe. He's back in charge now, the real one. Not the guy pretending to be him. It's all good shit. Uh, so after that, Huntress and Nightwing go back to Bloodhaven to Nightwing's apartment. They end up hooking back up right at the same time as the Defacer is flying to Dick's place to apologize and try to get back together with him. So that's the big reveal to end the issue is, oh shit, he's fucking that girl instead of me right now. What's going to happen? We'll see. Uh, so that's kind of where that one ends off. Pretty solid. I mean, if you've been following the Dick Racing Nightwing Agent 37 Grayson uh, solo books for a long time now, I mean, it all ties everything in together nicely, which was really cool to see. If, if you've only been like following along since Rebirth, you're going to be a little bit confused with all the random old spiral callbacks. So, I mean... It's a book definitely worth checking out. It's one I've really enjoyed reading. I'm reading them monthly as they come out here this time now with the Nightwing stuff. It's one of the better uh, Rebirths uh, series. I mean, yeah, it's worth checking out if you like Dick Grayson. Um, other DC book that I've been really into now is probably my favorite one. It's my favorite one right now. There, there's some potential with the Justice League of America, the JLA team, because it features Lobo as a member. That one has huge potential to overtake it as my all-time favorite uh, Rebirth series. But for right now, at least, Batman Detective Comics is my top, top book in the series. I, I don't know why it's titled the Detective Comics one, but basically what it is, it's, it's the Bat Family. Uh, it's the new Bat Family series. It, it originally started out with the series lineup of Batman. He recruited his cousin, Kate Kane, who is, of course, Batwoman. He recruits her, he's like, look, I'm on like 98 different fucking teams in this shitty Rebirth uh, storyline universe, so I can't always be everywhere when I'm needed to be. I need someone to like train my new squad of Bat Family and to kind of keep an eye on them and like lead them and just tell them how to be heroes. So Kay Kane reluctantly agrees and she accepts the position. So it's those two. And then Batman immediately recruits Red Robin, Tim Drake, which is awesome. Love Tim Drake. He and his girlfriend, Spoiler, who also joins the team. Spoiler is the only female Robin that's ever existed. So she's got some familiarity with like the whole Bat Family picture. She's in there. She's in the loop. Um, she's the daughter of a former supervillain. She's turned good. One time Robin. Uh, currently, she and Red Robin are, are an item. Um, they're getting ready. It's revealed that Red Robin got into some like super prestigious uh, tech program at some big time college and he wants to quit superheroing to go off and like try to live a normal life you know in uh, in education in like tech and eventually maybe a career in that as opposed to being sidekick superhero but uh he's like all right i'm just gonna wait until the end of the summer i'm gonna help bruce out with this program right now with his whole new bat family team just get them get them uh, get their help them get their feet wet and then at the end of the summer that's when i'll enroll and spoiler keeps telling him you have to let bruce know at some point it's like, yeah, I know, I just keep putting it off, I'll eventually tell him. And the other two members of this team are Clayface, supervillain, of course. Basil Crane has decided he no longer wants to be the, the madman who terrifies everyone. He wants to find a way to just go back to looking like a regular human being so he can start acting again. 
That's his one and only passion in life is acting. It's also revealed to him that every time he turns into Clayface, the mud and meta-human gunk kind of are poisoning his brain every time he's Clayface formed. So that's kind of freaking him out and scaring him. And so Tim Drake makes him this little nifty like wristwatch bracelet thing that with a tap of a button you can just change from Clayface to regular human form. Kind of similar to like uh, on the old Wolverine and the X-Men, or no, on the old X-Men Evolution cartoon. Like they made one for Nightcrawler that just magically made him a regular like white kid instead of a blue mutant for when he went to high school. It's that magic of comic book um, tech that you could just magically make these wristwatches that turn you from one thing into another at that, the touch of a button. They give him that. Uh, the other member is Orphan, who later, further down in the series, we find out that that she's the daughter of Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva is one of Ra's al Ghul's uh, daughters, Ali al Ghul's sister. So she's kind of basically Robin's cousin, uh, Batman's niece. So she goes under the alias of Orphan. She's she is kind of similar to like the when Damian Wayne first appeared as Robin, where she's got all the training with the League of Shadows. So she's a master assassin, even though she's just like a, a little kid. So she's the other teammate. Uh, very early on in this series, though, the very first collected issue, Kate Kane's father, he's leading a military program. It's top secret. I believe they're calling themselves the Hive. I can't remember. I think it's the Hive. But they're kind of trying to program them, or they're kind of trying to prep in case supervillains ever go, or superheroes ever go bad, so they can take out all vigilantes and superheroes. And they, they set up this whole drone thing set up with all these drones that are attacking the Bell Tower, or the Belfry, which is the new base of this Bat Family team. It's called the Belfry. Tim Drake helps Bruce Wayne build it. It's got all of Tim Drake's gadgets and all of his know-how behind it. It gets hacked by this master hacker who's working for uh, Kate Kane's father's team. And he turns all the uh, defenses on, all set to target Batman. Uh, Red Robin kind of hacks into it at the last second. And he puts all the targets right on him. Because he says, he yells out to Bruce right before he dies, uh, the world needs its Batman. They can live without a Red Robin, but they need a fucking Batman. So Red Robin, we were all led to believe, he gets killed right then and there by all of his own tech, uh, protecting Batman. It is later revealed, though, that he is somehow teleported at the last fucking second before he dies, and he just wakes up mysteriously trapped inside of a prison cell. We don't know who it's by, like, Rachel Ghoul keeps making appearances all throughout this series, so it's heavily implied that it might be something that has to do with Rache and the League of Assassins. But yeah, uh, so, fortunately, Tim Drake is not dead. He's alive, we just don't know it. Or, the Bat Team doesn't know it, we know it, they're, they're not supposed to know it yet. So, all throughout issue 2 then, Cassidy, his girlfriend, spoiler, she is like heartbroken and devastated and she can't get over the loss of Tim Drake. Issue 2 kind of ends with this shitty makeup like pretend bat family team. Like there's a, a lady clayface called Mud something and there's like a, yeah, an equivalent of each member of the bat family team to, to fight them all one on one and of course they end up losing. But it's all going down in Azrael, uh, Jean-Philippe's uh, church, which he also has as a sanctuary for homeless people of Gotham, where they can come in and spend the night on a cot, get a warm meal. So it's, it's like a housing home for, for those less fortunate in Gotham. And so that they bring the fight into there, which puts all of these innocent lives at risk. And that's kind of the breaking point for spoiler. Uh, she says, 
Batman doesn't give a shit, which, I mean, this is kind of like my favorite thing, too. She says Batman doesn't give a shit as long as he gets the job done about who the collateral damage might affect or hurt and in what way. Which, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure there have been characters in comic books before who have brought up this point, but this is the, the most recent one that I can remember or even think of. Because, yeah, no one ever factors in, like, hey, we're fighting and we're blowing up all these fucking buildings, and there's going to be rubble and buildings just collapsing every fucking where around the city, smashing hundreds of thousands of innocent people and just destroying their fucking lives, leaving them homeless and, you know, poor losing everything that they love like their loved ones but no one ever once like mentions it or dwells on it or uh, even like refers to it like there's never any like callback to like a giant battle scene in issue one that killed billions of innocent people no one ever brings it up and they're like oh yeah whoops we we did murder all of those innocent people didn't we shoot but she's the first one who's kind of like you know someone has to like think about all of that because that is happening every single time this Bat family team gets into a battle. There's just countless fucking loss all across the board of all the people of Gotham, where the people we're supposed to be protecting and looking out for. So that coupled with the loss of Tim Drake kind of snaps her. She's like, yeah, fuck this. I quit. I'm out. She just disappears. We don't see her for two issues. To take her place, they do recruit John Philippe, who is Azrael. So it's Azrael. And then Luke Fox, who is the son of Lucius Fox, who creates all of the Batman technology. He joins the team. He's a superhero by the name of Batwing. His backstory is he's a semi-professional MMA fighter slash billionaire slash tech expert. He takes after his father Lucius that way. So he joins the team to kind of fill Red Robin's spot when he, he is or passed, or so we thought. Uh, so that's the new lineup moving forward here. Uh, they've been going with that one pretty much since-ish uh, Volume 2. So the, the latest book, what happens is there's a whole big thing going on with Jean-Philippe. It, it turns out the Church of Saint-Dumas, they, they trained Azrael uh, to be an expert assassin kill everyone on there that they saw fit to kill because they weren't true believers in the right god kind of it's a lot of like they're, they're kind of like religious uh extremists basically and that's kind of what the church of saint dumas is it turns out that there was a rogue member of their order who created his own church and he has created a monster it's using the Azrael ai technology because Azrael. His suit is kind of part AI, part him, is how it works. It's, it's a tricky, convoluted comic book story. But basically, they use that, and they combined it with a new child offspring that they've been raising to be a master assassin since birth. And they implant the mind AI from that kid, and then they can wipe out the human component of it. So it's basically an Asriel that's all cyborg killing machine that thing has been unreal has been released and it's now hunting down like the last members of the actual order of saint dumas who are on earth uh we see it murder one on cobblepot the penguins uh big boat gala when he's having some fancy get together that bruce wayne was attending bruce wayne is unable to save him but we do also see zaytana there so he kills that guy there's this weird demon heady bear type creature called Namos? It's something like that. I can't remember the name. Just tried to look it up online. Can't find it. It's something like Namos or No Dam. Something with an N-O. But uh, 
Yeah, so he, he's like this weird demon creature from hell who escapes from hell just to come up and warn Jean-Paul. And I know I kept calling him Jean-Philippe. That was my mistake. It's Jean-Paul Valley. But he comes up and he, he's trying to get in touch with him and warn him that his super Azrael is kind of on the loose. And he's hunting down all the remaining members of St. Tomas and just butchering them. Uh, he eventually gets discovered by the, uh, the family team. And they take him to a med bay in the Belfry, and they're kind of looking over him. They have Clayface to guard with him, make sure he stays safe, while the rest of the team goes to try and hunt down this monster killer Azrael version. It turns out, so whole side story thing that's going on here, Satana and Batman are hanging out the entire time while the rest of the team is like dealing with that thing. I've always been under the impression that Zatanna was sort of more like in the age range of Dick and Jason, like the younger sidekicks. I always thought uh, her father Zataro was like more in Batman's pure range. But this whole story is showing Batman as like a young teenager learning from Zataro when he's going through all of his pre-Batman training stuff. And he and uh, Zatanna are kind of flirting around the entire time. And Zatanna shows this super top-secret, ultra-powerful, magical item that her family bloodline has been sworn with protecting for generations. So she threatens to show it, or teases showing it to Batman at that point in time. Basically what it is, any question you could ever think of, it'll show you the answer to it. But it comes at this great, great cost where basically drives you so insane just seeing all the truth available in the world and it kind of melts your fucking brain so like they have to protect it because they're magical and they know what to do with it and they know never to use it now to how to keep it safe and out of the reach of everyone but she's kind of like just trying to impress bruce wayne because she's got a young schoolgirl crush on him and she's like hey check this out i'm a badass look at this thing i'm guarding and he's like oh yeah cool and Zataro catches him kind of dicking around with it and he yells at her and then we don't see them in the flashback anymore. But as Batman is being kicked out of Zataro's place when he was trying to learn, he does cross paths with Ra's al Ghul, who is Zataro's special guest. So again, more Ra's al Ghul going on in the storyline. Something's going to happen. Like they've been dealing with like the League of Shadows and the League of Assassins. Uh, mostly it's been like Batman kind of, he's not working with Raish, but they've kind of got a common enemy right now in Lady Shiva. And so just for the sake of staying safe, they're kind of working together to try and stop her. That's, that's kind of been happening all throughout here and there throughout the series. But uh, right now they're in this issue. Um, he, he just makes the one little slide uh, appearance when he just kind of crosses path with young Bruce Wayne at Sitaro's. So Zatanna has this magical orb that her family's been sworn with protecting the entire time. Her and Batman are kind of off on their own little side quest, uh, flirting the entire time and just kind of like, Batman wants to know if there was anything he could have done to save Tim Drake's life. This question has been haunting him. I mean, he lost one of his favorite sidekick, former Robin. So yeah, it's, it's tearing him apart from the inside. He wants to know if there was anything that could have been done to keep Tim Drake safe. Z Zatanna knows that he, it's killing him, but she refuses to let him see this thing because she knows he, he can't handle the truth of it and it would pretty much destroy him. So that little orb thing that she has, I forget what the hell they were calling it in the book, but whatever it is that comes into play as they are battling Ascalon, that's the super evil Azrael's name. He kind of does something where he touches Azrael while they're battling, and like the AI in both their suits kind of combine, and they go into like this sort of 
psychic plane where they have a little conversation and they realize that their brother is Ascalon is basically a clone of Jean Paul and the leader of this evil Saint Dumas rogue team. It's actually uh, Jean Paul's father, and so lots of convoluted family relation and ties going into this. Uh, but it ends with Zatanna placing the orb in Ascalon's hand. And you can see the answer is to all the world, and it melts him from the inside out, which we're led to believe kills him. Um, he does yell at Bruce Wayne as he's melting, though. Tim Drake is still alive. It wasn't your fault you didn't get him killed. So he kind of answers that one for Bruce. I don't know why, but at least now we know Tim Drake is still out there. So hopefully going forward, the team will be trying to do something to like track him down and find him and bring him back into the fold or at least bring him back into the books because he just randomly will like have one panel of just like hey i'm still alive and i'm still here don't forget i exist and that's it so like he hasn't been seen pretty much since that whole first issue where it was revealed that he wasn't actually dead so hopefully going forward they're going to be trying to find him uh jean paul his, his status with the team is kind of up in the air because like the whole psychic plane thing with his brother that kind of fucked with his head and he got beaten half to death and Zatanna was just healing all the other members but he, he tells Batman no I don't, I don't want her help I want to feel this pain because it at least like lets me feel something so he's kind of like stuck in a wheelchair right now temporarily or, or possibly permanently so I don't know if he's going to be leaving the team going forward or what's going to be happening but we'll, we'll see but yeah great story there definitely read it it'll make way more sense than me trying to explain it here with all this nonsense but yeah check out the batman detective comic line it's my favorite one of the rebirth stories going forward right or going on right now um i highly recommend it like i said jla though they keep giving lobo some love as opposed to just having him be like a background character page filler making a couple stupid remarks every now every issue that one could take it over but for now it's still detective comics read that um that was the only two dc series that i had gotten into right now there's a ton of marvel ones going on though very first one here it's the solo gene gray book it's the gene gray from the past so it's the young teenage gene gene gray who came back with the original five I, I know in the past i've been a little critical of this series like x-men blue it is written by one of my favorite authors colin bunn but just the whole idea and concept of bringing back the original five is just such a fucking lazy stupid idea to me i just yeah, that that bugs me uh, but yeah, still, I figured I would give this one a shot just to just to read, really. Um, what's going on in this one is it, it starts out Jean Grey with Pickles. Pickles is one of the little Bamps. Bamps are little tiny Nightcrawlers, basically. They were devil seeds of Nightcrawler's father, the Marvel Azrael, um, when he was trying to take over Earth and unleash Hell on it. And they were revealed that they were like his secret little spies that were there to help him teleport hell on earth so after that all went down uh, most of them because there used to be a ton of them just living at the x-men school and they would just always be showing up and getting this ass drunk with the wolverine um so most of them have gone away uh, after that whole failed attempt but we still have one who hangs out with the original five and like the younger students like he hangs out with like kid genesis or kid apocalypse i mean and uh, ida and that whole team of the young kids. So his name is Biggles. Basically, he's just a teleporter, the exact same as Nightcrawler. Uh, it was revealed in the past that you have to feed them a bunch of food, junk food, to, so they can make big teleports. They can kind of go distances. 
and they have like a shelf life on how much teleporting they can do in a certain day. Um, so the two of them are just in Japan just because Jean Grey wants some time alone from like all the guys on the team. Uh, they're just getting some lunch in Japan and it turns out the wrecking crew show up to try and steal a truck full of yen. I think that's Japanese money, right? Yen? They're trying to steal a truck full of that. Uh, so Jean Grey kind of intervenes, stops them to save the day because she's a good guy and they have to in these books. And while she's kind of battling them, uh, she keeps getting these like visions in her head and she keeps hearing a female voice talking to her, kind of warning her like, hey, I'm coming for you. You better get ready. Uh, you're, you can't escape your destiny. Um, it turns out it's the Phoenix keeps fucking with her mind and, and just giving her all these telepathic images and warnings and like kind of a, a giant countdown that she started. Um, Jean Grey is under the impression that because she missed the time period of life when real Jean Grey became the Phoenix and had to deal with the whole Phoenix and Dark Phoenix sagas, that she's somehow going to be lucky enough to just skip all of that and live a normal life and grow up happy and not have to die by the phoenix. But uh, with with the phoenix just kind of constantly popping up in her head in this throughout this entire series, she just keeps reminding her, "No, I'm still coming for you. You're still Jean Grey. I still have a connection with Jean Grey, and I, I want to live again. So get ready, I'm coming." So that freaks her out, of course, as it normally would anyone. So she goes back to the X-Mansion, uh, she sits down with Kitty Pride. also we have Captain Marvel there because Captain Marvel now leads Alpha Flight, Alpha Flight has taken over for S.W.O.R.D. as the Earth's protectors against any like intergalactic intruders that might co be coming along. So like in the Captain Marvel series books right now, it's Captain Marvel with a team of the Alpha Flight team which in these are just Sasquatch, Puck, and North Star's sister Aurora. And then, of course, Ellen Brand, who was the leader of S.W.O.R.D. back when S.W.O.R.D. had this job. She occasionally makes random appearances and helps them out in the system. So I don't know if she's actually a part of their team or, or if it's just special guest appearances. But anyway, that's why Captain Marvel is there, because the Phoenix is an intergalactic threat. And then Beast, like the actual Beast, not the young original beast from the past but actual hank mccoy blue fur beast he is there too and that one kind of confused me because the last time i remember seeing beast the x-men golden blue series he was on the new bad guy team with emma frost and havoc and zorn all being uh, uh manipulated by bastion and miss uh, sinister so i'm not sure how the fuck beast is now cured of that and uh showing up at the x school and helping them out but somehow he is he's there as well so he's running some tests to see if he can uh trigger and, and he's they're just searching the galaxy on his map of the galaxy i guess trying to see if there's any like dings or uh notices of the phoenix they can't find any so instead of listening to the person with the strongest bond ever to the phoenix gene gray they're just like oh you must just be imagining this there's no, no threat coming. Don't worry. Uh, we're all smart adults and we say it's fine, which makes absolutely no goddamn sense whatsoever. Why if Jean Grey is telling you, hey, I've got premonitions of the Phoenix coming and she's talking to me in my head, telling me to look out, she's coming for me. Why would any of you think that just because you can't see her on some stupid map that the Beast made, that means everyone's fine and safe. This is the goddamn Phoenix. We we've all these all these three characters. They've all lived through that shit. They know what the Phoenix is capable of, 
and how insanely monstrously strong she is. So for them to just like laugh off and ignore Jean Grey's warning is like arguably the stupidest thing that has ever happened in Marvel comic history. Like how fucking insanely dumb. No excuse for that. But whatever. It, it moves the story along, so fuck it. We're going with it. So because of this, Jean Grey's freaked out, of course, and she decides, all right, so Phoenix is coming for me. I'm going to need to know how all the previous people who have hosted it have been able to like get over the, the terror of the mind, uh, the, the mind terrors that it has caused when it leaves. So she hunts down Quentin Guire, who at this point in time has not ever hosted the Phoenix, but in the future, he will eventually one day be the world's strongest Omega level psychic. And he will be the host of the Phoenix at some point in time in the future. But for some reason, he's still able to, like, hold the memories from that future version of himself and know about it and remember it and share it with Jean Grey. But he hunts her down. She brings him, Rachel Summers, who's now going by Prestige, Colossus, and Magic, the four of them she's just chatting with. And Quentin Quire takes them inside of each person's mind. They go inside of uh, Rachel's mind. And she kind of sees, like, the hell she's still dealing with, trying to get over it. Same with Colossus. Like, he's still huge and tough and super badass. But inside the mind, he's got this walked-away little dungeon where he's just constantly in torment because of what the Phoenix did to him. And uh, Quentin Quire also shows her even his little, like, walked-away torment of it. They all have, they're all still tormented by the Phoenix, basically. They don't show Magic's mind, which, even though Magic in the series is only in for, like, a two-page two-page uh, spread it paints her in one of the most badass uh, pictures possible because I, I love the character of magic because she's such an awesome character she's got the soul sword she's the ruler of fucking limbo or marvel hell basically she was one of the phoenix five during the whole avengers vs x-men storyline so she's not a character to fuck with and quentin quire kind of just explains it as i don't want to go inside of magic's mind because i'm too terrified of what might be in there Magic, uh, or Jean Grey's like, yeah, wait, we didn't ever saw what happened to Magic. Magic goes, you want to go into my mind, go for it. But I'm warning you, I'm Magic. It's my mind. Be prepared. Yeah, I don't think you could take it, little girl. So, like, Colossus and uh, Quentin Quire kind of talk Jean Grey out of that terrible decision. And just, just that two-page thread of her doing that and just, like, warning her. And, like, she has this awesome smirk on her face the entire time. She's like, you want to go for it? Go for it. So it just kind of paints her as one of the most badass characters around, which is awesome. I love that they did that for her. It's uh, totally, like, up, up her level even more. So Jean Grey has no satisfaction from everything she's learned from all these guys. So she's like, hey, there's one other X-Man air quotes x-man who was a part of that phoenix 5 team who i didn't uh investigate i was thinking like oh maybe she's gonna go and try and find like the new evil emma frost and like figure out what happened to her but no she's talking about goddamn neymar neymar has not made an appearance in a fucking x-men book or as far as i know a single marvel book since the whole avengers vs x-men storyline so i was like oh wow what a weird little random like cameo appearance that this one is so gene gray goes into the uh, ocean in search of namor he is of course the king of atlantis he, he's kind of like the marvel version of uh, aquaman however he he's not nearly as like team friendly he, like i said this is the first issue i think that he's been in for any marvel book since the whole adventures for sex men when cyclops and emma betray him and steal his phoenix power so i mean he's just been hiding down in the ocean this entire time doing uh, his own thing so uh Jean Grey is attacked by this giant kraken namor just flies swims out of nowhere to save her and he's being like 
his classic, stubborn, cocky, dickish self the entire time to her. And eventually, like, he's fighting the Kraken and he gets uh, stung by it. And we learn Kraken stings apparently have poison in them. So he eventually gets paralyzed from the whole, his whole body gets paralyzed because of the uh, toxins. And so while he's stuck there and the Kraken is kind of like outside of this little uh, underwater building where they're kind of taking shelter in. He's like, all right, Jean Grey, uh, now's your chance before we die. Go ahead and jump in my mind and see what I, I feel from the Jean Grey for or from the Phoenix Force if you want it so bad. So she hops in there and even the most cocky, cool, calm and collected cat in all of Marvel Namor, even he's like still messed up in his mind from what happened with the when he possessed the Phoenix or when he was possessed by the Phoenix. So Jean Grey is now like, oh shit, I don't stand a single chance. These are some of like the most badass characters in all of Marvel, and here I am, just this little like 14-ish year old girl or whatever from the 1950s or 60s or whatever, out of place and out of time. I might be in trouble here. Being in the storylines, uh so Jean Grey kind of channels her inner badassness and kills the Kraken to save Namor. And then she's like, all right, it was nice having you in a Marvel book here. Goodbye, probably for another six years, Namor. And she leaves. She's like, all right, if I'm going to beat the Phoenix, I can no longer just try to prepare my mind for what might happen to it. I have to start preparing my body to actually, like, fight this thing off. So the first place she goes is Asgard. Thor is no longer Thor at this point in time. He's just the Odin son. Uh, even though his first name is still technically Thor, they don't refer to him as the superhero Thor because the superhero named Thor is Jane Foster, who now holds Mjolnir. Back during an original Sin storyline, uh, when Nick Fury killed Uatu the Watcher uh, and all the Avengers and everyone were trying to stop him, he whispered inside of Thor's ear about the secret of his sister Angela and uh, beat Thor Totally forgot he had this sister who existed. That somehow made him unworthy to yield Mjolnir anymore. So he kind of like loses it on the moon and it just sits there. No one can pick it up. What brought us to Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel, until Jane Foster comes along and she proves herself worthy and she is Thor from then on. So Odin's son is now kind of just using this awesome battle axe. And man, I'm going to butcher this name, but I am going to give it a shot. Jarnbjorn, maybe? Jarnborn? Something like that. Yarmorn, I guess. So it's just his axe. That's his main weapon now. Um, so he's sitting in this random pub inside of Asgard. Jean Grey shows up on her way to find him. She was up on a mountaintop and she saw this horde of Asgardian creatures that she doesn't know what they're called. So she's decided she's just going to refer to them as orcs like from Lord of the Rings because that's what they look like. And so Thor is just shit-faced drunk keeps singing and just telling all these old stories of his former battles the whole time Jean Grey is trying to like warn him hey we have a fight that's coming we have to get ready because they're coming for you it's Thor's the only one in this bar besides the barmaid she leaves after Jean Grey kind of gives her the heads up like trouble's coming so it's just Jean and Thor and the two of them just take on this entire army of all these little orc characters they're in the army Jean Grey she kind of pulls out like this psi weapon. It's like a psi version of uh, Mjolnir, her own little psychic hammer. She uses that as a weapon during her battle. Uh, she originally went there to find Thor so that he could train her because he is the best warrior in Marvel War, apparently, or at least in her mind. But when she pulled out that weapon, she was like, oh shit, maybe I can actually tap into this and use some like psychic weapons on the Phoenix. And Thor is too drunk to actually help me and teach me anything. So I'm going to leave Asgard now. 
she then goes and finds Psylocke. Psylocke is uh, trying to help her figure out how to control, how to use those Psy weapons. Psylocke, of course, most famous, the assassin member of the X-Men who also has psychic powers. She usually draws like Psy daggers and Psy uh, swords. They're kind of like psychic weapons that she can use to like pierce into the skull of you and wipe your mind or just blank your mind using them. So she's probably the best person to go to to try to figure out how to use a psychic weapon. So that's where Jean Grey goes and uh, help her train with this. She sends her into a, a hand base. It's where the hand have been uh, recreating more and more soldiers. And uh, she explains to them that they're already all dead. They're kind of like zo- dead, undead zombie ninjas. So feel free to just kill them at will. It'll just help you get trained. You don't have to worry about feeling bad about murdering them. So Jean Grey uh, sneaks into their lab. She's placing all these bombs all over the place. And she keeps trying to use her power or, or her newfound psi weapon power to kill these guys. But she can't harness it at the right time. So she keeps getting caught. And um, it finally pops up like right before she gets uh, attacked. And she realizes it's kind of like a fight or flight mechanism for her. Where she has to be in extreme uh, duress and trouble before she can actually figure out and harness how to use them. So that's when she keeps using them. Uh, they blow up the hand lair. That's kind of the end of Psylocke's story. She didn't really help her figure it out. Or this latest relaunch. Other than like you have to be in trouble near death before you can actually master them or, or use them. So she leaves Psylocke's side and she goes forward. The next thing she does is she goes and sees Doc Strange, uh, Stephen Strange. He's kind of performing like a sort of exorcism on her because all throughout all of these missions and stuff, she keeps getting those Phoenix visions and, and like the, the Phoenix warnings in her mind. So she goes to Stephen, Stephen Strange to see if there's anything that he can do. Maybe it's like a magic related thing that he can help her figure out. So he puts her in this sort of like exorcism type thing where the two of them go out to the astral plane. And they're chasing down the original, or, or not original Jean Grey, original Jean Grey is the kid. But they're chasing down real Jean Grey, like the adult version of Jean Grey who actually dealt with the Phoenix in the past. She shows up and she's like, I'm the one who keeps popping into your mind. It's not the actual Phoenix, it's me. I'm warning you, you're not prepared. You need to do a heck of a lot more if you're going to stand any chance and uh, right our wrongs of the past and actually like give us a, a good storybook ending here. So it turns out it's not actually uh, the Phoenix that was warning her, but it, it was Jean Grey herself trying to like prepare her for the incoming battle because she's warning her, like, I am connected to the Phoenix too, as are you. I can sense it. It is coming. That part is real. I wasn't just like lying to you. You need to get ready. You have to stop this thing because I wasn't strong enough and I couldn't do it. So it's all on you, little Jean Grey. So that, that story ends off there where she's just kind of like, all right, shit, the Phoenix is coming for me. I know that now, even though the beast can find it on his stupid fucking space map somehow. Fuck the beast, by the way. Even though he can find it on his super cool space map, I have to prepare. Phoenix is coming for me. Um, this was the very first issue of this collection. It was like the first five issues, the very first collected issue. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to see what goes on with it moving forward. I hate the idea of the original five being back, and, but at least this was like not a little bit different from their normal stories. So, yeah, I'll give it a shot. I mean, if you skip it, you're fine. It wasn't great. It had a lot of cool cameos, but yeah, I'm going to continue reading it just to see like how it plays out i think the other big marvel one that i, I read and was really excited to check out was a solo iceman book 
So when they brought back all the original fives, they decided to stop having them all just be your basic cookie cutter white kid team. They wanted to try to diversify it however they could. The first thing they tried doing was instead of making Beast solely a man of science, he's now accepted the fact that magic is a real uh, weapon and it, it's a super powerful thing. He's finally accepted that. So he's currently training under Steven Strange and Ileana Rasputin, aka teammate Magic. He's kind of getting tutored by both of them to, to control magic and figure it out and learn it. And that's just fucking terrible. It's so fucking stupid. Fuck the beast. Seriously. That's such a stupid storyline for him. But alright, it gives him something to do. He's different now. Hooray. Ooh, science. It's so exciting. But because they didn't want that pathetic thing to be the only uh, new change they made to the original five, so they kind of just by process of elimination decided they should out one of the characters just for the sake of doing something to him, I guess. Like, there really is no rhyme or reason for, for why they needed they felt they needed to do this. I mean, just from a continuity standpoint alone, this is the team that's been around since, like, the 1960s. So if you decide at this point now, in 2018 now, or I guess 2016-ish is right around the time when they brought him back, you decide that's when you finally need to make some huge drastic uh, change to their storyline. That's obviously going to raise a laundry list full of continuity problems that you're going to be running into. So just by process of elimination, clearly Cyclops, he has probably two of Marvel's most historical marriages in its history. So you can't really make him your new out character just because of Jean Grey and Emma Frost. So that, that kind of eliminates him, takes him out of the picture there. Um, with Warren Worthington, I mean, he's a character who has gotten around with a handful of the Marvel ladies. But in more recent years, he has settled down with Betsy Braddock, Sadlock. Given his current states right now, where Warren Worthington is actually, he's not dead, but he's brain dead. He's stuck, trapped inside of the Apocalypse Seed, which has possessed him once again and turned him solely into Archangel. He no longer has the power to transfer back and forth and, and control his Archangel tendencies. The only thing that's kind of keeping him from just eviscerating everyone on the planet right now is his psychic bond with longtime girlfriend Betsy Braddock. So Psylocke is kind of like the one person who's able to kind of keep him in check. Because at this point in time, he's 100% brain dead because she had to side knife him to, to stop him from uh, going full on apocalypse style crazy and trying to take over the world. So because she did that, he's 100% brain dead. He's just a solely a killing machine. He, he was functioning as her muscle, her protection. Uh, I'm going to explain this later on when I uh, review the X-Force book or what I thought was an X-Force book. It was actually just Magneto's Uncanny X-Men. But uh, yeah, his part on that team was solely to be Betsy's backup. She's he's his bodyguard. He has no control over what he does anymore. He's solely on the planet now and solely exists just to fucking murder every single thing he finds. So she's able to kind of keep him in check. So just because he's at that state right now in current comic book times, you kind of can't out him and have like his bond with Psylocke be lessened a little bit by having to be like, oh no, she was my beard this entire time. I was totally gay. So just for the sake of like keeping him somewhat contained, you kind of can't out him right now either. I mean, Jean Grey, I, I guess you could have if you wanted to, but she's got her own little book and her own little side storyline going on. Um, all about like getting ready to deal with the Phoenix that's coming for her. So, I mean, even though I had mentioned her wedding to Cyclops is one of the things that kind of made it why you can really out him. 
there were like Madeline Pryor and, and like clones that Cyclops has had relations with in the past and kind of like seeded Rachel Summers from one of those clones. So, I mean, you could have done some shitty, awful comic booky way around it if you did do that. But I mean, just for the sake of it, I think it is better to not really out her either. So it kind of narrows it down to just either Beast or Iceman. And I would have gone with Beast only because as far as like relationships with known Marvel characters go, he had one who was this uh, offshoot female character who appeared solely to be the Beast's love interest for a handful of years. And I think she ended up dying or whatever happened to her. She, she only appeared as his love interest and hasn't appeared ever since then. And then the other huge one is Abigail Brand, who, as I mentioned previously, she, she's the former leader of S.W.O.R.D., which is like their outer space, their planetary uh, guardian shield type team. They're supposed to exist to keep the planet safe from any intergalactic trespassers and that. But really, they serve more as just the team that calls either the Avengers or the X-Men anytime the Shi'ar or like the Black Order or any of the other, the Builders or any of the other fucking intergalactic teams overpower them and just prove how fucking worthless a team they are. And they just call them in and say, hey, we fucked up again. Get ready for a fight because we're terrible and worthless. So, I mean, like with her being off planet all the time because she's stationed on this uh, spaceship that they, they have as their main base. I mean, that makes for a perfect storyline right there. You could really go deep into that and try to like tell some stories if you ever like Beast becomes full on good guy again, which I, I'm still very fuzzy about whether or not he is or isn't a complete good guy or if he's still working with Mrs. Sinister and Bastion. I think it was that he was just under Emma Frost's mind control. Like she controlled Zorn, who she had then control everyone else who was on the team. And so when the X-Men Blue team battled them, and they kind of broke up that uh, side link between Emma and Zorn for a little bit while rescuing Cyclops. I think that kind of messed with it. And I'm guessing that Beast broke free and just left at that point in time. Because that was the last time I saw him before he showed up in the uh, Gene book. So that's kind of what I'm thinking must have happened. But uh, yeah, yeah. So because of that, if he is so good, I mean, you could absolutely dive back into that because Abigail Brand is back on the sword base again. She's kind of like an underling for Captain Marvel at this point in time now. This sword are no longer in control of that. It's now relegated to Alpha Flight. But Abigail Brand always shows up and just tries to help out because she has the most experience dealing with that sort of thing of like all the big named characters. So because she's like the main character that Beast has in current books that we know of that, that he has a history a romance with a romantic past with it makes so much more sense from a continuity standpoint storytelling standpoint because you went with Iceman Marvel and I mean right before all the uh, Peter Quill marriage stuff with them uh, with Kitty Pride uh, during like the Avengers vs X-Men storyline Kitty Pride and Iceman were dating at that point in time and it kind of kind of ended and immediately after that ended Kitty Pride ends up going out to the other space and, and going with the original five as like their teacher and they start dating Peter Quill and she ends up marrying him at one point. And right after that marriage happens, it's immediately erased by the Battle World relaunch shit. So, I mean, it's it's a tricky ending of their relationship, but they do say in this book that they are no longer together. And she's trying to just figure out like what's going on, why she keeps failing at love, I guess. But even before that, and, and they do call back to this, is Polaris, who is another one of the huge like love interests of Bobby Drake's. 
he was competing with Havoc, trying to win her over. There, there's one, there's one page in this Iceman book which kind of stuck out to me. It's, it's after he finally like comes out to all of his teammates. I guess he just like bulk texts everyone because we get a one-page response where it's the only time North Star has been seen since North Star's wedding. And so I guess Bobby Drake sent him some kind of message saying, oh yeah, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm gay too. Because North Star's little text response just says, oh hey, that's great. Congratulations. If you ever needed to talk, you know where to find me. That's it. That's that's the only um, North Star appearance we've had in like, how long has it been? Three years now, maybe? But uh, on that same page, there's a response from Polaris as well. And her response is, oh, I always kind of figured that. That's why I picked Havoc over you. They just kind of try to play it off as this pathetic bullshit. Oh, yeah, it was totally obvious to her. So don't worry. But, I mean, even after uh, he and Kitty Pride break up, yeah, there's a lot of flirting going on, and it's heavily implied that he and Firebrand are kind of, like, potentially finding something there between the two of them. And then there's even also other characters as well. that he never officially was in a relationship, but there was always sort of, like, flirt implications that there was something going on like uh boom boom that was always a good one there and then warbird who she was always the one who was interested in iceman always propositioning him to be a part of her mating ritual if she was a gr warrior and they're part bird creatures from outer space and it's weird and it never happened but yeah i mean that's just another example i mean the the main the other main reason I kind of wish it was Beast as opposed to Iceman, other than like it murkying up like all of his history, is just because there was this one time, I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly, I, I think it was either an alternate universe or it was just a different timeline, but there was a relationship going on between Beast and Wonder Man. And I know it wasn't like an X-Men storybook, but still, I mean, that was kind of the one good thing Wonder Man has ever done in comic history was that one time he dated the Beast and was, wasn't totally worthless and creepy and awful. I really just wish they would go back to that couple and make it a real thing. Beast and Wonder Man, guys, bring it back. Um, decent book. I mean, it's good. Iceman is actually getting something to do now. He's one of the better characters. I hate when he just kind of sits around as like a page filler background character, just doing like one shitty little line of like a stupid joke in every issue just to turn the page and take up space. Old Man Logan. So at least now he's got his own actual series. Wasn't a great issue. Hopefully it gets way, way, way better. We will see though. This was the first collection, collected issue of it. So I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a chance. I'm way more excited about Nice Man books than I am young Jean Grey one. So hopefully this one is awesome. All right, and then the very last series that I've read recently, I actually just finished this one yesterday. It's the Weapon X book. I was really hoping it was just going to be a continuation of the all new Wolverine stuff that they were doing before this last relaunch, where the that last issue of that, it was kind of X-23 who had taken over the mantle of Wolverine after Logan Wolverine died. She got trapped with Dokken, Mystique, Sabretooth, and Professor X because they had all had ties to actual Wolverine. I never, I'm sure there was a, another issue of that to like close it up. I never actually read it. So I'm still waiting to see what happened there. And I was thinking uh, when I saw this issue, I was like, oh, maybe this is what uh, happened with it. This is the continuation of that book. But um, unfortunately, it is not. This is the story of Old Man Logan, because of course we have to have a thousand Wolverines in all of our teams, in all of our books. Old Man Wolverine gets attacked by these two 
people who turned into cyborg and they have like wolverine's healing factor and they're made of adamantium like his claws are uh so they attack old man logan in the middle of the woods he just narrowly is able to like outsmart him and escape him he couldn't beat him he was overmatched and he's like oh man i might be in some serious trouble these are mutant killing they're, they're not sentinels but they're basically like a new version of Sentinels, where they can disguise themselves as human. They can mask their sense too. So, like Logan wasn't even able to like sniff the fact that they were not human. They were killing machines, and they meant to do them harm. So he's like, "Oh man, we might be screwed. We're we're in trouble. I need to go and get some help." So next place he goes, he goes to Sabretooth's uh, cabin. Kind of just in the middle of nowhere in the woods. He goes into Sabretooth and he's like, hey, I'm not here to fight you. I just need your help. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are these killing robots that are after us. I don't know if they've uh, come after you or not yet. And Sabretooth slips off of his shirt. He's like, I'm still healing right now from my battle with them a little bit ago. And they ripped off 100 pounds of meat and flesh from Sabretooth. So he's still in the process of healing and getting all recovered. When they did that, they've been taking him to this Weapon X facility where you see that they've already got Lady Death Strike in, in, cap in captivity. Uh, she's in like a tank, kind of like they were when they originally got the Adamantium and Logan. Um, so they're in these holding tank. They're not cells. They're like tanks full of fluids and shit where they're extracting um, all the healing factor and the adamantium somehow from their bones and blood. I don't know how they're doing it. It's comic books. That's how they explain it, I guess. But yeah, they've already got Deathstrike. So they've already got like her powers incorporated into these cyborgs magically. And so then they, uh, you see them send out a team of horses. They're wild mustangs in the middle of the prairie. And they're going after Warpath, who was just out there clearing his head. And he's like, oh no, there's a helicopter coming by and it's kind of harassing the mustangs. And Warpath gets pissed off about it. So he decides to teach the pilot of this plane a lesson. He rips the pilot, or he rips the helicopter out of the sky. And he goes to look at who the pilot is and just kind of yell at him. And it turns out it's just a mannequin. It was being remotely uh, controlled from a, a different location. And then these Mustangs that he was trying to save, they turn into the same cyborgs. And they, they keep stating the fact that Warpath is one of the strongest X-Men in Marvel lore. So they capture him eventually. Like They overrun him. They turn her body into a, And they're able to capture him. And they take him to that same place where they have Deathstrike. They put him into a tank. They extract his strength and also his flight ability. And they incorporate that those into the new batches of the next form of cyborg that they're creating. They unleash those on Domino. Domino, they want to capture her ability to uh, manipulate luck. I, I guess cyborgs having the ability to create great luck for themselves is a huge weapon. I don't know why or how, but that's what they want. So they go after her. Uh, Wolverine and... Sabretooth, they knew that they were going to be attacking uh, Domino because they hacked into this um, car dealership and they found the GPS in the remote of the car rental that these two cyborg men had taken to go and find Domino. So they were able to meet him there, just kind of track him. So they saved Domino and they blow up the two uh, cyborgs that were attacking him. They're like, oh no, we need to form like a little team here if we're going to save Warpath and save Lady of Deathstrike. Because they can tell from the powers that these cyborgs have that they obviously have Warpath and Lady Deathstrike hold prisoner somewhere if they're not dead. I, I don't know why. They, they could tell. So the next person they go after for some reason 
is Amadeus Cho. He is the new Incredible Hulk. He took over Bruce Banner's powers, so Bruce Banner is just Bruce Banner now. He's no longer got the Hulk. Somehow it was transferable to him because he's like the smartest man in the Marvel Universe, even though he's like a 16-year-old kid. He's out in space saving a Russian satellite, and he randomly gets stopped by two uh, guy and girl that just look like regular people with no, like, spacesuits or equipment. And he's like, oh, that's pretty odd. And then they turn their arms into missile launchers and just attack him. They blow up his jetpack and they start scratching him and clawing him with the death strike claws, trying to extract his blood so they can send a sample back to the uh, Weapon X facility because they want to be able to also give him that Super Hulk strength and the ability to get more and more dangerous, the angrier and angrier they get. Amadeus is eventually able to overtake the two uh, cyborgs, and he crashes into Earth, and he's doing some tests on them, and he realizes that they've got uh, trace elements of both Sabretooth and Old Man Logan, so he decides he needs to chase those guys down and find them and see what they, if they know what the heck's going on. So he meets up with Wolverine, Sabretooth, and Domino, and so that's the foursome. That's the team that they're going to go and attack this Weapon X facility and try to save Warpath and Legend of Strike if they're still alive. They also try to stop these cyborgs and stop the scientists. They're creating them and making them more and more strong and powerful. So they do eventually find the location because uh, Amadeus Chow was smart enough to keep one of the robots uh, not, not dead and not alive, but at least like intact halfway so that the self-destruct mechanism couldn't go off. And he's able to keep it in one piece so he can take it and try to like figure out the programming on it to try to get whatever information from it he can. And he's able to do that and they find this location on this uh, deserted oil rig in the middle of the ocean. So they fly their ship in, they attack, and it's no human people are on it except for the couple scientists down below. But it's got all these fake human skinned cyborgs that are kind of like as sentries just kind of manning the ship on the outside. So the team goes in, they attack them, they, they find Warpath, and they find Lady Deathstroke. They free them from their cells, or not cells, their tanks. They free them from that shit. They, they chase after the three scientists that are there that started all this and have been doing all the tests. They've been creating all the more and more advanced versions of the cyborgs. And while they're in there, Lady Deathstroke wants to murder the people that, that were doing all this testing on her. She says that they've like opened up pulled out her eyes and like experimented on on those several times they've cut her ch heart out of her chest seven different times and they're like oh yeah yeah but you just immediately rehealed you're you're fine you can't feel it she's like no no i feel it every single time you think it doesn't hurt it absolutely causes me pain each and every time i'm going to show you that pain uh, i'm this cho you won't let her kill her kill anyone as he's explaining to her that there's no killing while he's around, someone else from a remote location who has a camera on the situation, it's a self-destruct button that blows up that whole oil rig base, killing those three people. Amadeus chose so distraught over the, the willingness to just sacrifice these three scientists who were doing all this work for whoever it was. And that's the closing panel, is that we see it's Reverend William Stryker. So I guess this is sort of like a Purifiers. Um, the Purifiers have been making a lot of appearances in the new X-Men team stuff. They, they, they did have a small cameo. Or they did make a small appearance, a couple of bad guys. Oh, Generation X. That was the other book. Okay, fuck. I remember. Okay, so the Purifiers... Um, they're like religious zealots who believe that mutants are disgraces uh, of God to God, and Stryker is now their leader, and so it's, he's the one who's behind all the making of these cyborgs. So the the issue collection ends with just the reveal that it's him. 
So going forward, the, the new issue two of this just came out last Tuesday. So I haven't gotten to it yet. I, I do very much want to continue reading this story, though. Because even though I'm tired right now, I'm just kind of like speeding through what happened in it. It, it is a really fun, action-packed book. But I'm going to keep going with this one. Highly recommend this one, too. The other book that I totally forgot about until just now when I was talking about the purifiers, Generation X. That's the other one I read. Generation X, it's kind of like the new... It's basically like the school students, like the non-original five. It, it's uh, Jubilee is in it, too. So basically, it's Kitty Pride who's the headmistress of the school. And then working below her, her chamber and Jubilee. They're two of the teachers. Danny Moonstar, who, uh, just like Jubilee, is no longer a mutant, but she still works and uh, helps them at the school. She, she's kind of like the school nurse, I guess, somehow. Uh, so the, those are the three like staff members that are involved in this series. And then it mainly follows Jubilee's team of like younger new mutants. So Quentin Choir is a part of the team. Roxy is a part of the team. Roxy is kind of like Sort of like a diamondy, I believe her power name or her code name is called Bling. Yeah, it's Quentin Choir. It's Bling. His name is Roxy Washington, and then it's Eye Boy. He's basically a character who just has thousands of, or not thousands, but dozens of eyes all over his body. You can see out of all of them at all times. There's a, a new character they introduce uh, who they just keep calling Nathaniel all throughout this series. But eventually he does get the uh, nickname of hindsight, or not the nickname, the code name of hindsight. Uh, what he does, if he touches you with skin to skin contact, he can kind of see a bunch of your memories from your past. So he, he always wears gloves, kind of like rogue style, because he doesn't like doing it. It's sort of like intrusive. The mutants sort of like whenever a, a telepath will read your mind without permission. And then there's the new Morph character, Benjamin Deeds, uh, exactly like the old Morph from the old comic, or just change into your whoever. And the last one is Nature Girl, kind of weird power set where she could talk with all animals and all plant life on the planet. She, I'm not super familiar with her, but she might be the coolest part of this team, just because in this first issue, she kind of shines and kind of shows just how badass she potentially could be. What's going on in this one? Nathaniel just shows up and he's not sure if he wants to stay around at the X school because he doesn't think he ever wants to be an X-Man. He just wants to learn how to like control his powers and not cause people pain or damage or anything when he's around them. He just wants to figure out how he can control it to live a normal life going forward. And Roxy's getting kind of bummed out because she's under the impression that because they're being trained by Jubilee, that they're kind of like the, the D squad of the school. They're, they're not the action team. They're kind of like the team of people who maybe don't have the right power set to eventually become X-Men characters. And they're kind of just learning how to live normal lives with powers as regular mutants, as shitty, like, side-wide, side-background characters. I mean, she's kind of weird coming from her because she she's basically Emma Frost's diamond form. That, that is her power. However, she can never turn back into, like, a regular human. And so eventually, uh, a couple of issues into this, she has an open heart-to-heart with Chamber where she's explaining, like, the reason she's still desperate to become an X-Man is because she doesn't look like regular humans. So she can't just go back into the open, regular world and just live a normal life because she's always going to look like a mutant. She's always going to stick out. So she's desperate to eventually like prove herself worthy of being an X-Man. So that's kind of her whole motivation in this. But uh, what's going on here is uh, Quentin Choir. He and uh, Morph, he and Benjamin Deeds, they're roommates, and he keeps taking Benjamin Deeds out late at night. Kitty Pride 
put in a curfew of like, I think it's like seven o'clock at night or something really ridiculously early. They run into M, Monet, who I haven't seen since the last X-Force volume uh, book. So what happened there was it was the greatest X-Force team of most badass murderous killers ever assembled. It was Magneto, it was Psylocke, and as protection for Psylocke, it was a brain dead, solely bent on, solely killer version of Archangel. Like he's no longer able to turn back into war more than a regular angel. He went evil with the apocalypse seed, and so Psylocke had to cyanize him in the, in the mind and kind of wipe his mind. So he's kind of like a brain-dead, just soul-murdering machine. So he's kind of there on the team solely as Psylocke's protection. She's the only one with any kind of bond to him, and she can kind of control him. So she knows Magneto's eventually going to double-cross her, work so well. And when that does happen, Archangel is going to fucking murder him. That's kind of like her, her, uh, the whole reason he's on this team. He, he really provides nothing. He just flies in like a cage attached to the, uh, the, their airplane whenever they go anywhere. He's not really, uh, associating or acting, interacting with the rest of the team. He's just there to protect Betsy. Uh, and then Monet, St. Crew, M, uh, she's one of my favorite characters. She's mostly, I know her from the old X Factor care, X Factor books. She was also in the original Generation X, uh, series, which is, Probably why they brought her back for this. But she and Sabretooth during that old X-Force series, they kind of kept having like this flirty, like, will they, won't they hook up sort of thing. Because they're, they're both like the two badass fighters of the team. And so they just keep kind of like uh, challenging one another to see who can beat the shit out of and mess up more people whenever they run into like hordes and hordes of uh, bad guys to fight. Well, Magneto and uh, Psylocke try to like figure out all the master plans of everything. Those two are just the foot soldiers who just fuck everything up. And then Phantom X and Mystique were like sleeper agents that Magneto also had on that team. But that is the last time I had seen Monet in anything. And at one point in time during that series, her brother, Endplate, which is a mutant-powered kind of vampire, where it's got like long sort of omega-red-looking things that come out of its hands. It's got like mouths on its hands with these long omega-red sort of strength powered tongue things that kind of come out of its hands and feed in the drain powers of mutants and that's how uh kind of lives he's her brother and at the end of that x-factor x-force series they had a run-in with him in the sewer where he was trying to like take over monet because i guess somehow he can also possess her and turn her into the same person they sort of merge as like one thing and so I, I remember him trying to do that to her but i don't think it happened successfully i haven't read that series in a little while now but I, I don't remember them actually merging at all i remember him making an appearance and like getting defeated and leaving but apparently at some point in time during the tie over between that time and this new series of x generation generation x whatever apparently they have merged since then because she randomly shows up one day and Roxy is out trying to like figure out a way to prove herself worthy of being an X-Man. And she attacks her and she starts draining her life and nearly kills her. That's why Kitty puts in the uh, curfew to keep everyone safe from, I guess they're calling her Monet Plate. And Plate slash Monet and, and Plate. Yeah, so, so to try to keep everyone safe from her, yeah, they put in a curfew. And while this curfew is going on, Quinquire and Benjamin, they keep going out and they're just doing stupid shit all night long because Quinquire is also somehow a billionaire now and um finally he's like starting to affect him in class he keeps sleeping during all of his classes uh, so one night nathaniel he goes out with them and they end up going to this auction with uh cocaine kilgore 
who is the new leader of the new Hellfire Club, which is kind of like a, a kid version of the Hellfire Club to rival the young kid students from the old Wolverine the X-Men uh, comic series. They end up going to this uh, auction that he's hosting the one night, and it turns out he's got this new nanobot technology sentinel and you just kind of release it into the wild and it immediately hunts down and murders any mutants i mean it sounds like the same sort of thing they've been doing with the sentinels for the past couple years but apparently it's even more powerful and more dangerous a version of it so it kind of ends with a choir Nathaniel and Ben kind of like, oh, we need to get this. And instead of bidding on it, Quentin Choir is just going to coax whoever actually purchases it to give it to him using his telekinesis on him. Um, while all that is going on, Jubilee and Chamber have decided that they're going to hunt down Monet, try to help her if they can. If they can't, they're going to at least eliminate her so that she can't hurt any more of their students. I mean, yeah, I, I like, because it's it's Generation X, so they're using a bunch of the characters that were from the original Generation X team, with like Chamber and Jubilee, Monet. So that's, that's kind of a nice little tie-in there. It, it has potential. I mean, it's at least it's doing something with a lot of the characters that are usually forgotten about, or just kind of like background characters when you're reading other X-Men books. And it gives Jubilee something to do. Always like Jubilee. Yeah, I mean, should be should keep checking it out. It should get better and better, I would think. Plus, I love Monet. Monet is one of the top characters in my opinion. So yeah, if they can hopefully eventually like cure her of her brother's control or whatever warped combination of the two of them and just get actual M back. That'd be fucking awesome because she's an awesome character. So I really want to see what happens to her um, going forward here with this as well. But yeah, I'm tired now. I'm done. So I'm going to wrap up this episode. This is Baby Giraffes number two, I guess. The day version. Follow us everywhere on the internet at GiraffesHPTPod on Twitter. Tweet us and let us know how much you enjoy or hate these episodes so we know like what we might need to do to fix them or give us suggestions. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about. Post it on our Facebook page. We have one of those as well. It's Facebook.com slash giraffes hbt pod that thing just rolls off the tongue you know it's so easy to remember that's where we're at online type that into your search engines you'll find something of ours get on the twitter and get on the facebook like share and subscribe this episode and all of our previous episodes give us reviews on like facebook and itunes and everything else on the internet share us with your loved ones share us with your enemies as well your loved ones will thank you for it your enemies will kneel before you and recognize you as the alpha send us messages letting us know how fucking dumb we are uh, interact with us let us know what you want us to hear what you want to hear us do and talk about follow me on Twitter at DStuTheGod. If you have any kind of video or editing needs, go to DonaldLevandowski.com. Tell him you need some help. He will do it for you. He'll do. It. He'll work his magic. He turns this shit that I've just put out into sounding ever so slightly less terrible. He's a magic man. I, I can think of nothing else to shamelessly plug. Follow everything, like everything, share everything, rate everything, and yeah. Till next time. Bye.